So, we are in bless, and we're at the last S, and we are in story, and um, Delyn Abadi is going to share her story today. We're going to start off with her, and I asked Delyn, if you could have walk-up music, like you're walking up to the batter's box, what would it be? She picked this. Hit it, Travis. Oh, very good. Everybody was on it. Yeah, well done. Good job. Uh, welcome to Lynn, lady. So first, why friends? Tell me that. Uh, that is something that is kind of a me and my husband thing. We uh, started dating at a time when I was traveling a lot with work, and so we would FaceTime every night, and any time that we ran out of things to say, he would turn the camera around and we would watch friends together. And uh, we still, anytime we don't know what to do, we turn on friends and, and veg out. So. Okay. Friends has made you friends. Yes. Wonderful. Yes, All right. Has. For those of you who don't know, uh, Delyn is my daughter. And Delyn was recently married this last uh, summer. Uh, just been married a few months, right? Yeah. So tell us how you met Tony, how that all materialized. So we actually met quite a few years ago here. Um, he was 10 and I was 4. And uh, <laughs> um, we both moved back to Fort Scott around the same time, within about two months of each other, I think, and ended up working at Wardcraft um, together. And I was the secretary. I had the directory open um, all the time. And his name, being a baby, was the first one. And I was very curious about that. And so I asked uh, Lindsay Haddon about him, and I asked her to give him my number. And the rest is history. We've been writing novels to each other ever since. So if his last name had been Zeke, would you have ever gotten to him? It's a good question. I don't know. He's fortunate to have an A <laughs> yeah. last name. Yep. Okay. Um, you recently had a spiritual birthday and, with a cool story. So tell us about that. Mm-hmm. So I was baptized October 27th, 2002. So I just celebrated 16 years of being baptized. And the day that I was baptized, my mom realized that she had been baptized 20 years previously the same day. So we share that. Um, same spiritual birthday, been, which yeah. was last... Last Saturday. Saturday. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Um, what do you do? What keeps you busy? I am a cosmetologist. Um, I work in a salon here, and I work at a nursing home in Nevada called Barone, and it is um, specific to Alzheimer's. So you do hair for Alzheimer's patients? Yes. Okay. There's got to be a story or two there. So share one of those. Yeah. So my most recent favorite story, um, it's very common in nursing homes for residents to date each other. Um, Alzheimer's patients take that a step further and they don't realize that they're not married. So um, part of my job is to go and... um, get residents and tell them that they have an appointment. So I went out one day and um, was telling this woman that she was due for a a set and style, and she was sitting next to a man who she believed to be her husband. And it was not. (laughs) She's got a husband. This is not her husband. But anyway, um, (laughs) um, so 
She didn't want to come with me because she said she needed to stay with her husband and, and be there for support for something. Um, but I, I convinced her to get up. And as she got up, I looked at him and I said, I'll bring her back better looking than she is now. And he said, please keep her. <laughs> <laughs> She's not my wife anyway. No. Keep her, keep her. <laughs> um, tell us a secret ambition that you have that nobody else would guess ever. I have always wanted to own a duck. I want a pet duck. You want a pet duck? I do. I think we have a picture of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. It is. So it's a little distorted, but you can't really tell that I've actually got tears in my eyes here. This day was one of the best of my life. I'd say it's probably second only to my wedding day. Like, it was... It was a great day. Let's this is the clear. only time that I've held a duck. I never allowed a duck in my house. No. And I'm glad that you don't live in my house. <laughs> is Tony going to let you have a duck? Absolutely not. No. no there's no, no way. It's not going to happen. So that picture is the closest you're ever going to get. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. Hey, we're going to have some fun. Uh, and then Delyn is, uh, we're going to sing another song. Delyn's going to share her story. But uh, the way we're going to have some fun is with movie quotes. Okay. And okay. I am told that we are going to spin a wheel here. And uh, there will be some famous movie quotes on the wheel, and uh, you're going to go first, and we'll go back and forth, and you just need to do your best shot at uh, acting out whatever quote pops up, okay? All right, so Travis, give her a good one. We'll give you some music to help you as well, Okay. okay? Here we go. Everybody know the movie? Sandlot? We got some Sandlot music. Oh, let me let me favorite. let me set this up for you because I think I can help you. Okay. How can I have s'more or something? I haven't had anything yet. You're killing me, Smalls. Well done. Good job. Good job. <laughs> nice. Nice. All right, my turn. Travis, give me something good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anybody know the movie? Braveheart, yeah, Braveheart. So uh, I need to channel my inner Scottish man. I don't, I don't think I have that. Uh, yeah, that's the right music. Okay. I think he was on a horse, right? <laughs> they may take our lives, but they can never take our freedom. That's so close. That was great. I need, I need, yeah. Almost perfect. That's a good one. That's yep. a good one. Yep, all right. What music we got? What is that? What is that? I have to have a toe Oh, oh. The lullaby. Can you do the dance? I can. There it is. Well done. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Good job. Good job. Oh, 
so fun. Anybody know? Titanic? Here it is. Oh, there's dolphin down. The dolphin. Look at the dolphin. I'm king of the world. I think there's one more. Okay. Here we go. Yeah. Anybody seen Taken? Oh, great music, too. Okay. All right. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have any money. But what I do have are a very specific set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now. Let me go, let me go. If you let my dad go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you and I will kill you. We're just sure that Liam Neeson said that in Christian love, like, right? So, hey, we want you to uh, stand where you are. We want you to think of your favorite movie line, one of your favorite movie lines, and share that with some people around you. Welcome everybody that you see. Tell them you're glad they're here today. Would you stand? Greet each other. Good morning. I'll be reading from Galatians chapter 6, verses 15 through 18 of the New Living Translation. It doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. May God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. From now on, don't let anyone trouble me with these things. For I bear on my body the scars that show I belong to Jesus. Dear brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your, be with your spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Told first service, it's pretty cool that I got to have my mother-in-law do that for me in first service and my husband do that for me in second service. I went to CIY with the youth group this year, and on the way back, it was my mom and dad and I in the church van for a lot of hours. I told my dad that night that I would like to preach sometime, and he said, I think we're going to do a series that will enable you to tell your story, so we'll keep that in mind. I thought, did I say that correctly? Did I not just say that I wanted to preach? I let it lie and figured I would bring it up again and word it differently. A few weeks later, we were at La Hacienda, and I did just that. I told my dad again that I would like to preach, and he replied again with, Yeah, I'd like for you to share your story. Something about me, I don't have a problem sharing. It's not difficult for me to talk about myself, but I don't want to share, I didn't want to share this story up here. Not because I don't think it would benefit other, those listening, not because I have a problem telling it, but mainly because I know there are a lot of you that have been through situations like this, or ones where the outcome has been roughly the same. That being the case, I feel like a middle schooler up here. 
You know, when you pass a few middle school girls talking about this week's crisis and you think, I wish I knew you knew what I know. It's not that it's not important. They're obviously distraught over it and they have every right to be because they're young. But if they knew what you knew about life, love, and the true meaning of things that comes with life experiences, this situation would not be nearly as difficult for them to bear. This is the feeling I have up here right now. All of you in chairs have hundreds of years combined life experience, and there's likely nothing I can say in the next 20 minutes, if I can keep it to 20 minutes. I am my father's daughter. Uh, That will change your life. But I wasn't asked to change your life, so here's my story. In the spirit of transparency, which again is not actually a problem with me, I want to warn you that there will be some shocking parts to my story. A little over three years ago, I met a man. That's how most of these things start, right? I was online searching for my husband, as most of my generation is doing now, and I met a guy named Alex. His name happens to be a part of what drew me to him. His name was Alex, and his brother's name was Davis. In case you don't know me or my family personally, I have two brothers named Alex and Davis. This was this man's foot in the door. We talked off and on for about a year, but didn't date. In that year, I dated a different man who used me for my washing machine. I wish I could say I was kidding and ended up getting a girl pregnant while I was probably folding his laundry. After things with that man ended, I dated another man who ended up being married. Before I continue, I would like to say that I have a great relationship with my dad. He told me he loved me and that I was beautiful every way that he knows how as I was growing up. None of my actions have had anything to do with a desire for the love of a father. For now, and until a group of highly trained psychologists can tell me what happened in my brain, We're just going to say that I had a desire to experience something different from the practically perfect life I grew up in. As an example of how desperate I was for this, I will tell you that I didn't break up with either of the above-mentioned men when I found out these damning things. I was so desperate that I convinced myself it was the Christian thing to do to stay with these men and forgive them, even though I had only been with them for a few months and neither of them had any interest in being with me anyway. I did end up breaking up with them, both times at their suggestion. How stupid is that? I want to throw out there to any unmarried girls and guys that you are not obligated to stay with someone you're dating if they are making it clear that they do not love and respect you. Do not believe the lies that Satan tells you. It is not your job to save them. If there is anything that you gain from my story, let it be that. It is not your job to save them. It is not your job to save them. Until you say I do, you have not committed your life to something, to someone, and oftentimes in abusive situations or situations in which you have been obviously disrespected, the best Christian example you can live out for this person to see is to be consistent. And most of the time, that means walking away. Back to Alex. At the end of each of the aforementioned relationships, I had a few times, and a few times during these relationships, Alex worked his way into issues and made me believe that he had my best interest at heart. He used the entire year that we knew each other before dating to learn about me and my life. By the time we started dating, I'd venture to say he knew me about as well as my parents know me. That sounds very sweet, right? That's what every girl wants. We want to be known. I wanted to be known. This seemed like a great idea, and because he knew me so well, I had very little trouble slowly stepping away from every standard I had ever set for myself. I felt that because he knew me so well, he wouldn't be suggesting things I wasn't comfortable with. 
Can you see what just happened? By show of hands, does anyone close their eyes automatically when they turn off the lights? No? Just me? Okay, cool. Um, That's okay. I expected that. I expected that. It's fine. Um, I have done this since I was little. Um, Knowing that I'm not going to be able to see anything anyway, instinctively, when I turn off the lights, I close my eyes. Um, This is exactly what I did with Alex. I felt that he knew me, and instead of keeping my eyes open and staying alert to the things that might be destructive, I closed my eyes and accepted and accepted that I wasn't going to see those things because I truly believed that they weren't there. If I had had my eyes open, I would have never dated him in the first place. This is a man who pursued me and would not let me date other men, but by the day that we made our relationship Facebook official, I was the one begging him for commitment. Over the course of our relationship, that was pretty much the norm. He would want something, and somehow I was the one that ended up begging for it. About a week after we started dating, I moved in with him. I still had my own apartment, but my clothes were all at his house, and I didn't sleep in my own bed more than twice in the months that we were together. I even left my dog at his house. We would spend most of our time at a bar down the street or outside his, on his back patio, always with a drink in our hands. I learned very quickly to start counting his drinks. At number three, I knew to make myself as small as possible and bolster him if he talked to me. It didn't matter what he was saying. If I didn't agree with him, I'd be punished. By some miracle, he never actually laid a hand on me unless it was for sex. My punishments were were all verbal. He would tell me I was stupid for not realizing the man before him um, was married. He would tell me that I wasn't going to amount to anything. You're just a cosmetologist who has said a few times and implied a lot. I was verbally, mentally, and sexually abused so much that I have suppressed a lot of it. I was forced to participate in illegal activities. I was made to feel like the source of the world's problems. I was threatened with a knife and a baseball bat on separate occasions, and probably the most dehumanizing of all were the many times I was not allowed to go to the bathroom by myself. I was terrified constantly. There are a lot of reasons women stay in relationships like this. Most of them are embarrassed and feel that they will be judged by family and friends for speaking out against their boyfriend or husband. Some of them are scared to leave. Some of them want their significant, uh, to save their significant other from themselves. For me, it was a thing called gaslighting, which is kind of a combination of all of that. In emotionally abusive and manipulative relationships, it is common for the, the abuser to convince the person they're with that they are no longer loved by friends and family. It's something that happens slowly and then all at once. For example, Alex started our relationship by introducing me to all of his friends and coming up with reasons to not see any of my friends. The longer we were together, the less I saw or talked to anyone with whom I had had a relationship before Alex. Before I knew it, I believed my friends and family weren't making the effort to talk to me, and that meant that they didn't want to. Eventually, Alex and I started talking about making my living arrangements permanent, and I felt that I needed to tell the people I loved about this honestly believing that it wouldn't matter because they didn't care about me anymore. He and I fought about this forever, but I felt it was the polite thing to do. He told me it didn't matter what they thought, and the only important thing was what we felt. Had I been in my right right mind, remembering how much these people really do love me, I would have never agreed to any of how we felt anyway. But knowing in my head that they didn't care about me any longer, I made five phone calls, 
about my move. Keep in mind as I tell you about these calls that these people had no idea about the, the abuse that was happening. The first call was to my aunt, Delisa. I thought she might show me some support, and I needed that before I made the other four calls. When I told Dee what my plan was, she strongly advised me against it. She didn't yell or sound disapproving, but she made it clear that this was a decision I shouldn't be making quickly. She also mentioned something about my parents being upset, but I didn't listen to that. So, not the support I was hoping for, but the bits and pieces I chose to hear and distorted to fit my agenda were enough to get me to the next call. I told my best friend Kate next. She and I have been through just about everything together since becoming roommates in college. I know everything about her, she knows everything about me, and I thought for sure she would be on my side. She wasn't. She told me it was a horrible decision, and should Alex and I get married, I would be sabotaging everything before it got started. This, again, wasn't what I wanted to hear, but it wasn't the worst reaction. The third call I made was to Ashlyn Baher. Ashlyn and I have been friends since we were little. She's another person who knows everything about me. This was the first call I was truly scared to make because I knew any reaction from her would be awful to take. I was right. I called her and she hung up on me. I called her the next day and she told me that she didn't want to talk to me because she didn't want to say anything she would regret, but she did say that I was being the dumbest she had ever known me to be. The fourth was similar. I called my cousin, Bailey, and she was the first one to yell. She told me she didn't understand how I could be abandoning my beliefs and my God. She made it clear that if I were to do this, she would have no part in my life ever again. This will sound ridiculous because it's pretty obvious that what she had said was true. I had abandoned my beliefs and my God, but I didn't realize it until she said it. The last call I made was to my parents. They were on their way to a Royals game and put me on speakerphone. I get physically ill every time I think about this call. All I said was Alex and I are moving in together, and then I shut up. There was silence on the other end, and then one of my parents said, did you expect us to be okay with this? I said no, and then they hung up. I don't think I stopped sobbing for more than 30 consecutive minutes that night. I sat on Alex's bed. He told me I was being ridiculous, but he would try to comfort me anyway. I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed, and I was sure that that was the last time I would ever talk to any of my family or friends. Later that evening, I got a text from my mom. It said something to the effect of, we need to meet with you in person, just you, not Alex. That night was one of the worst with Alex, second only to the night I had to call the cops on him because he had threatened suicide, and then got yelled at for putting his life in danger. The night before I met with my parents, Alex was possessed. Real-life exorcist kind of possessed. He was so drunk he couldn't walk, but with eyes as black as night, he managed to find keys. To this day, I don't know how he managed this because he only had one set and I had hidden them. He got in his car and drove all over Springfield. I know he didn't find his keys because I had them with me the whole time. I truly believe that he had a demon controlling him that night. I know that sounds crazy. But the things that happened that night couldn't have happened any other way. I watched as his car left his driveway from the window of his bedroom. I called him and he didn't answer. I finally decided I needed to follow him, although I didn't know what I would do had I caught up to him. I got in my car and went to where his dot on fine friends said he was. When I got there, I called him 
and he told me I was being stupid. He had never left, and he was waiting for me in bed. Sure enough, I looked down at my phone, and fine friends had him back at his house. I felt like an idiot. Why had I gotten in my car? I headed back, and it was like nothing had happened. The next day, neither of our phones had any records of texts or calls that had been made. I didn't realize that I, um, until I started writing this all down, that with the help of this demon inside him, he had manipulated that night as a last-ditch effort to make me believe that I had no right seeing anyone. He made me feel insane. I did end up going to Joplin to meet with my parents. I honestly don't know what made me go. I didn't want to go. I didn't think I should, but I did. I don't know if this was planned, but we ended up in the chapel on OCC's campus. For a few hours, my parents and I sat in an overflow room and went back and forth about right and wrong and love and disrespect and what I wanted my life to look like from that point forward and how I was going to get there. My dad is a brilliant man. I know a lot of you think that already, but let me just solidify that fact for you. He took a situation where he had every right to yell at me, and instead he made me think because he knows me. He knows that when I have my mind set on something, there is no talking me out of it. It has to be my idea, and he used the knowledge of who I am as a person to set me free. He showed me in that little room that I didn't need to go outside the boundaries of my raising to receive love and excitement and everything I had ever wanted. And it was then that my mom asked something like, does Alex really love you? And I couldn't answer that honestly. I'm going to backtrack a little here. Every night as I fell asleep in Alex's room, I prayed that God wouldn't give up on me. During the day, I went about life as though nothing had changed. I was still a good preacher's daughter. I still sang in the band at the church that I still attended every week. It was only at night when there was nothing else to think about and nobody to fool that I let myself feel the severity of my actions, even if I didn't truly believe that what I was doing was wrong. I knew I didn't feel good about it, but I didn't have anywhere to turn but to Alex. So I prayed God wouldn't give up on me, and then I rolled over and I'd fall asleep. God did not give up on me. He placed in my life six people who were willing to say I was being an idiot. He used Elisa and Kate and Ashlyn and Bailey and my parents to remind me that I am loved. During each of those phone calls, I felt a little of my persistence break. As I left that overflow room with my parents, I called Alex to tell him I wouldn't be officially moving in with him. And at that point, all it took was for Alex to say he was disappointed that I had let my parents rule my life for the light to click on in my mind. I remember thinking, this is the first decision I've made for myself in a long time. And then I realized, um, and when I realized that, I started to realize all of the things that had been happening to me. Over the last weeks of our series in Galatians, we talked about confronting and using truth and grace simultaneously and the fact that we need a support system. I'm going to add a thought to that and reiterate. You need to be someone people can listen to for sure. But more importantly, you need to know them before you speak. Don't get me wrong. I absolutely believe little moments with strangers can change lives. I believe random acts of kindness can bring people to Jesus. But bringing people back to Jesus needs to be done in a very specific order. There's a reason share is the last S. Only when you know how your people take criticism and direction from you specifically can you reach them. 
If you don't have the credentials with this person to be yelling, don't yell. Knowing people and the relationship you have with them is a tricky business, but it has to be done in order to get to them. Delisa knew that my relationship with my parents had, to that point, been the most important relationship in my life. Kate knew that I have always wanted to be married and have a marriage like my parents. Ashlyn knew that had she yelled, I would have told her she didn't know anything. But she also knew she couldn't let, let me off the hook by, saying any, by not saying anything. She needed to remind me that I was being stupid. Bailey knew one of my worst fears is being forgotten, and I knew she meant it when she said she would never talk to me again. And lastly, my parents knew that my whole heart is to live a Christ-loving life that shines to other people, specifically my future family. They knew that pointing out the fact that the direction I was headed would not heed the outcome of leading others to Christ would break down the walls of fear I had put up. I ended up moving home the day after I met my parents in Joplin. I literally packed up my life and ran away from my biggest problem, Alex. I can't say I severed ties with him immediately. Satan is good at his job, and it took me about a month to shake him off. But I was able to do it because of the grace of God shown to me by my parents. Almost three years later, I stood on this stage and married a man who pushes me towards God every day because he knows me, and he knows that's where I want to be. As I said, I do to that man, Bailey and Ashlyn and Kate stood next to me. And my parents sat right there. And they all promised to keep knowing me and their places in my life and push me towards righteousness in my life and marriage. My parents sat and witnessed as I pledged to put God first and Tony second. Our God is a big God who is faithful to himself. He didn't give up on me, and he used the people in my life and their willingness to live out Galatians 6 to bring me back to him. If you don't have a support system, I invite you one more time to find one. Let me reiterate that you will not, that will not happen in this room. Go out and find a group of people who will save your life should you stray.